You're listening to episode one of Songwriter Stories. I'm Dave Caruso. You might not recognize the name of our first guest. As he once told me, that's often the fate of a non-performing songwriter. There's no Tony McCauley Greatest Hits album available, since his songs were recorded by a variety of artists on a variety of different record labels. But if you like melodic pop music in the classic songwriting style, you'll probably recognize his music. Let's listen.
Tony McCauley is a songwriter and music producer who, in 1967, went from nowhere to number one in the UK with a song he co-wrote called Baby, Now That I Found You. He followed that success with a long string of pop releases that he co-wrote, wrote, or produced, as recorded by artists such as The Foundations, The Fifth Dimension, David Soule, The Fortunes, The Hollies, Glenn Campbell, Andy Williams, Elvis Presley, The Drifters, Tom Jones, Donna Summer, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, Johnny Mathis, Olivia Newton-John, and Engelbert Humperdinck. In this episode, you'll hear the stories behind some of Mr. McCauley's songs. We'll talk about his songwriting process, and we'll get to know some of the artists with whom he worked and some of his songwriting collaborators. We'll even get some valuable tips on songwriting for the theater. I couldn't have asked for a more interesting or accommodating guest for our inaugural show. Tony McCauley, welcome to Songwriter Stories, and let's talk about songwriting. Whoever wrote that biography on your website did a tremendous job. Um, <laughs> I learned a lot. I also learned things on Wikipedia about you. One of the things I learned is you were born as Anthony Gordon in Stone. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And what made you change it to McCauley? Um, well, when I started the business, I was a promotion man or a plugger is what they called them then. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they still do. Um, and that is someone who goes around radio stations trying to get records played for a publisher or, or a record company. But in those days in the UK, apart from the pirate ships, there was only the BBC that mattered. And the British Broadcasting Corporation was our national station. We hadn't got commercial stations when I started out in the mid 60s. And a high up executive in the company was a distant relative of mine the name Instone, which is actually a derivation of Einstein um, Albert Einstein the scientist was my grandfather's cousin it was such an unusual name and also she wasn't much like this woman she used to enjoy the bottle they called it Anna Ginstone <laughs> and it was thought nepotistic if I had the same name as a promotion man and so they said would I change my name and in those days, as in New York and many other cities, the exchange didn't have numbers. The telephone exchanges had names, like in New York, Judson, 4760. You know, and the same thing was in England. And Macaulay was a, a name of a telephone exchange. But anyway, I only got to the first page, uh, and there was the names of the, uh, the various exchanges, and Tony Macaulay had a ring to it, and that was that. Okay. You were uh, song-plugging for Essex. But then you started eventually producing at Pi. Was that around 1967? Yes, yes. Um, I ever wanted to be a record producer and a songwriter. And I soon realized the only way of even having a hope of doing that was trying to approach it from the inside of the in industry, not from the outside. And in those days, there were no more than about a dozen record producers in the whole industry. Nearly all were contracted directly to record companies. The only way of ever becoming a record producer was, you know, if somebody got fired and they were looking for someone new. And I worked my way up from a music publishing company to EMI Records. And from there, I, I went sideways and went from being a promotion man to a junior record producer. 
and eventually got around to recording my own songs. I had lost faith in my own songs somewhat by that then. But as soon as I started recording my own songs, I started having hits. And uh, from after, after that, things got uh, better and better. Did Essex and Pi have any kind of relationship? No. Uh, I had a, uh, the offer of being a plugger at Essex, and I seized it with both hands. I had no idea what a plugger even was. I just knew I was get, going to be salaried to a, a proper entity within the music industry. And once I was on the inside, I would hear of the sort of jobs that I wanted to get. And I used every means possible. I got lots of favors from studios to use time when nobody was booked in there for nothing to make all sorts of records and recordings, none of which were successful, but they got better and better and more and more accomplished to the point that I felt brave enough to play them to record companies to show that I could produce records. Maybe Now That I Found You was one of the first successes you had? Yeah, it was a tune we'd had for a long time. And the truth of the matter is I uh, got a phone call from the studio at Pi Records. And they said, what are you doing at home? You've booked this band in for an audition. I thought, oh my God, I had. And I was so hungover. And I got to the studio and I really couldn't tell whether they're any good or not. It's just a bloody awful noise in my head, the band. So I, I, rather, I gave them the benefit of the doubt and agreed to rehearse a song with them. We went to a pub in a room above a pub. I, 70, 80, 100 years before, it had been the home of Karl Marx, the man who, who invented communism, mm-hmm. this room we rehearsed in. And we, I hadn't even really finished the song. I, I had so little faith in the song and so little faith in them and myself really at the time, which is why the lyric is so incredibly repetitive. I just, um, and I had a lot of trouble making it. I had to redub the bass and we had to, because uh, the guy couldn't play and I, the guy couldn't sing the line before the chorus. Darling, I just can't let you. He just couldn't get that. So we got backing yeah. singers to sing that. And then that sounded ridiculous on its own. So we wrote all sorts of other vocal backing parts and added hand claps and God knows what else. And at the end of it all, it really did sound like a hit. You know, I would never have known that there was a reason for the background vocals to sing that part. I noticed that they did but I didn't realize that there was a story behind it. So that's great. John McLeod, am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah. I read that he was your mentor at Pi. I met him the day I joined the business uh, several years before. Uh, he was my father's generation. He'd been through the war. He was an extremely good arranger, one of the best I ever worked with. And also, you know, pretty good harmonist and pianist, you know. I, I only played the guitar at that point and I watched him play. We started writing songs together. And when we finished writing a song, I get him to show me how to play it on the piano. And very gradually, I learned, you know, I spent hours and hours locked away after work teaching myself the piano. I learned an awful lot of music from him. But as with all these things, there came a point when really, I was, uh, you know, the chemistry was no longer working. After a couple of years, I was fortunate enough to be in demand to write with all the best people in the business. And um, all sorts of pop acts wanted to write with me and so on. And I was anxious, you know, to get out in the field, you know, and I didn't think he was contributing, you know, as much. He was certainly doing wonderful arrangements to the songs, but I felt I was writing a lot on the guitar on my own and on the piano on my own. It came to a natural end, really, but there's no question about it. I learned an enormous amount of music from him that had I been working with someone who was musically ignorant as I was, I would never have probably developed the technique that I did over the years. When it came to business, he was as naive as I was. Uh, He'd never had any success as a songwriter until I came along when he was in his 50s. And so consequently, we um, 
we, you know, we did almost all writers did in those days and signed, you know, a pretty uh, obnoxious contract with some pretty obnoxious publishers who were like so many music publishers in those days, completely and utterly bent. Which of your co-writers were also at Pi? None. Almost everybody I wrote with had been successful for a decade before I even came along. So they're all about 10 years older than me. Okay. And these people that I'd you know, been buying the records they'd written and, and loving their songs for years suddenly became my friends and people I was writing with. I wondered about that because when I look at your co-writers work without you, I would say it's generationally a little bit older sounding than yours. Well, I was the sort of, at that particular point, all those years ago, I was the sort of new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. And being a record producer for a major record company also helped. But most of the record songwriters of that era were record producers. And the good thing was that if we all had acts we were recording, you know, many of which were successful acts. And so if you wrote with another songwriter, record producer, you know, I mean, the song would immediately be eaten up by one or other of us to, you know, to be at the very least an album track. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously we were trying to write as many singles as we could. Which artists were you the most heavily involved with as a songwriter or producer or both? What period are you talking about? Well, we're really looking at like, I think the late 60s, early 70s right now. Well, till, till 1969, uh, the, the only acts that matter for this conversation were uh, the Foundations. Um, Long John Baldry, who had a, hit, I had a number one hit with in England, uh, it was my second hit. A little group called Paper Dolls, I had a top five hit with called Something Here in My Heart. I also wrote for Scott Walker, The Hollies, and a number of other people. Um, we had a hit with a group called Pickety Witch called Same Old Feeling, which was top five. Mm-hmm. And it was really only when I left Pi, and, and the first record after that was Love Grows with Edison Lighthouse, that I started really just recording my own acts and you know really wrote for all and everyone that I could, you know. Did you play or sing on any of the songs you produced? Oh, God, yeah. Examples of that that we might be able to hear? Yes. I mean, oh, well, I sang vocal backups. I mean, what, strangely enough, my voice has actually uh, got better and better over the years. At the time, it really wasn't all that good at all. I could sing in tune, but it wasn't the sound you wanted to listen to. And whenever I did demonstration records to sell my songs to people, I always used, you know, top session singers. I never thought my voice was good enough. Strangely enough, it's actually <laughs> really not too bad these days, but <laughs> I sang vocal backups on a lot of tracks. I played all sorts of percussion instruments, and all sorts of overdubs from bass, guitar, guitar, um, uh, whatever was ne- whatever was missing that I could play, I played, dubbed on myself, you know. Bill Mount Buttercup, I added a lot of organ licks, which are key to the yeah. song, and added vocal backing and played the tambourine, all sorts of stuff. You write on piano and guitar now, ever since uh, you started adding piano to your arsenal. Yeah. At what point in your songwriting process do you reach for your instrument? I like to do it late in the process. I don't do it early. I don't what do you mean? start it in my head melodically and quarterly before I touch any instrument. Do you do the same thing or do you? I have done, yes. Yeah, some some big songs I wrote walking down the street and came home and found out the chords were quite good and they all had, they had some integrity when you actually played them. But in general, um, just playing, you know, for for whatever reason, sitting down at the piano in the right mood with the, or with the guitar, things, you know, tend to write themselves off. In the in the period you're talking about, through the 60s and 70s, it was often dependent on having a good title, or someone having asked you, some star name having asked you to write something for them, and therefore you having their voice, their voice and their particular style in your head at the time. 
um, having a piece of melody, you know, that she thought was good, but she didn't really have a lyric for. Uh, we always, it was always, nearly always, we started with the hook melody, you know, uh, and once we got the hook really sounding great, we we wrote all the other elements to it. And uh, I would work out guitar licks and opening riffs and things like that. So everything was pretty meticulously done. By the time it got to the end of the first chorus, I always know whether it was going to be a hit or not. I think it was about half a dozen times in my whole career when I was resolutely wrong, <laughs> but uh, in general. But often, often when it got to the end of the chorus, I thought, yeah, well, that's an album track that's never a hit, or it's a B-side or something. So, I mean, you know, out of the, you know, only a percentage of the songs you wrote screamed at you that they were hits. Gotcha. And t- sometimes songs were borderline. We said, well, if that was an unknown artist, it wouldn't be a hit. But if I recorded it, major stars who were big at the time, that probably would be a hit. Their name would help carry it for a lot of considerations. In an interview, you said once that you've contributed both music and lyrics to every collaborative experience you've had. That's and right, yeah. The only on. case where that wasn't true was the first big musical I wrote. Um, they brought in an American who just wanted Tony on Broadway, and they thought that would help. And they did. But in general, I always write the lyrics. I, I never, I've never written lyrics successfully to anybody else's tune because my brain doesn't work that way around. Okay, so you've also collaborated with a wide variety of partners, whereas most people have one or two or three partners. Um, you well, also- I was a musical whore, you know. <laughs> my, my view was uh, every time I sit down with, with somebody new, they might have a snippet of melody that inspires me or a snippet of lyric or just uh, some, some element that gets us going, and that turned out to be true. Well, despite all this variety and versatility, you, many of your songs still manage to have something in common to my ears. And it's more than just the era they came from. I'm specifically speaking of the late 60s and early 70s portion of your catalog. To me, it seems to begin with the types of melodies and chord changes which are written, some would say, in a classic songwriting style. What would you say contributes to the Tony McCauley sound? Um, well, Clive Davis, who was the great mentor for so many of us, and was he, and he, right until um, Simon Cowell. I mean, Simon Cowell was was mentored by Clive Davis, and he was the head of hmm. uh, CBS Records. Then he was head of Arista, and he had a list of, of artists that he has um, really um, mentored is staggering. Uh, and he was one of the great gurus of pop music. He used to say. A great pop song has a conversational verse and an anthem-esque chorus. And there's a huge amount of truth in that. It's not true of every song. There is no formula for writing songs. But uh, to me, um, the first four bars, first four measures of the chorus uh, of any song should have all the magic in the world. And it doesn't matter how much magic is in the rest of the song. If that doesn't give you a kick the first time you hear it, then something's wrong. The song doesn't have it. And um, I'm, you know, I'm very, very conscious of, of the chords and the bass line and the rhythm and the tempo and all the things that make give a song um, a commercial feel. So, I mean, I don't even bother starting a song or unless I get a kick out of it every time I play the chorus. Very often, I mean, I just have the first four bars of melody and a, and a dummy lyric just to have words to sing. Paul McCartney used to say the dummy lyric for yesterday was scrambled eggs, mm-hmm. scrambled eggs. All I really need is scrambling. So you have a dummy lyric. And often the test of it would be if I wake up the following morning and it's on my mind, you know, that would be a very good test. And it keeps kept on coming back to me. 
sometimes come back to you in a, in a slightly refined form, you know. So the next thing I would do is put it in the highest key that, that was feasible to sing it in. Because when you get to the chorus that you want the song to really have some impact and in order for the, it to sound like the singer is putting as much motion into it as possible, uh, it's very often the best idea to take a leaf out of opera and put the song in the highest key the singer can hit at that point. If you do that, then it gives you all the rest of the scale to write the rest of the song in a lower range so that you can set the chorus up properly. Whereas if you just do make the mistake that so many young songwriters do of singing it in the key they're most familiar with or most comfortable with, the song flatlines. It doesn't have any dynamic shift. It doesn't change gear in the chorus. You build emotionally and dramatically toward the chorus. You do. Really yeah, that's everything. So the interaction, the, the, the transition out of the verse into the chorus is the most important part of the song. So not only would I be looking at uh, what the verse says lyrically in order to set the chorus lyric up and melodically so that it starts well and builds into the chorus, but I'd be looking at all the musical engineering, <laughs> you might call it, all the modulation possibilities and especially, you know, later on, but all my song, a lot of my songs have modulations in them and they're all designed to set up to give the song a maximum amount of excitement. So when you get to the chorus, you know, there's a sense of, sense of, of going somewhere. And we didn't always get it right. Often I had to go back and, and re-record a song again with a different verse because, we, you know, we, sometimes we were so excited with the chorus, we, we sloughed the verse off and didn't give it enough thought. The most important thing then was to routine the song. And that was, we was having a tremendous amount of discussion. If it was going to be an unknown artist you were going to do the song with, then you needed to give the listener, i.e. the disc jockey or the radio show producer, something bloody good to hear right really quick. And so we'd go off and start with the chorus give them, and hit them over the head as hard as we could in the first 45 seconds of the song. If it was going to be a star name where people were going to be somewhat more patient and wait a minute or two to decide whether they liked them or not, then we might decide to start with a verse or perhaps just half a chorus, a verse and then into the chorus. Even then we try to keep the verses fairly to the point. So we got to the chorus pretty quickly. And in that event, we might put in a really impactive intro, something with you know, a strong guitar lick or some string line or something that made you think, hey, this sounds interesting. So a lot of thought went into how you laid the song out and record, rehearsing it with the artist to find out the perfect key to do it in, not just for them, but often for the orchestra, for the guitars or for the strings, you know, all these things came into account. And uh, so on and so forth. You covered everything I was going to cover. I wanted you to cover orchestration because there's horns in a lot of the uh, foundation songs and you've got strings in a lot of the songs. And you also talked about modulation. And I wanted to mention real quick for the listeners that in uh, Don't Give Up On Us Baby in the David Soul version, you sort of, maybe maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but you sort of do an almost key change at the end of the bridge when you're on the five chord. And <laughs> yeah, it's a fake, it's just had a bit of tension. Yeah, and then later. Yeah, it just adds a bit of tension. But uh, when we came to the proper key change, he goes off a half step towards the end. He couldn't sing that. He just couldn't hear it. Mm -hmm. And so what you hear is you hear three other voices double tracked singing that. Don't give. It moves up a half step. And he, and, and uh, I just dubbed them in, a, in that one section to cover the fact that he couldn't hear the key change. It came out great. <laughs> came out great. Now let's talk about collaboration a little bit, if you don't mind. 
Well, in the pop in the pop era, I, I, you know, it wasn't until we got to the last night, get a super tour, and don't give up on us, and so on. And I started having hits on my own. Mm-hmm. But you know, when you, I was writing so much, you know, one of the reasons I collaborated, as I say, was was really to just to bring somebody else in with a fresh set of ideas. Because uh, when you, you know, become a one-man song factory, you need all the help you can get. So in those years, I collaborated, largely collaborated. It wasn't until I started doing musicals and things later on, I started doing stuff on my own entirely. I don't enjoy collaborating at all anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it sounds arrogant, but I mean, I usually, if anything's going to work, it works pretty quickly. And also, you know, some songwriters, you know, I remember one particular songwriter should be nameless saying to me, come on, the football starts in an hour. We can get this done by then. And I said, I don't give a damn about the football. The song's finished when it's finished. And, you know, I can labor on a lyric for, for weeks, months sometimes, getting the perfect, you know, line or perfect rhyme or the perfect rhythm. A lot of collaborators just want the thing done, you know, after a period of time. And a song's never done until it's done, you know talking about theater particularly they say if it ain't on the page it ain't on the stage and that's absolutely true so well in those early days with uh the masons and um roger cook and roger greenaway and john mcleod and well know, those were writers that, you know in those days we if we met for to write then we'd start at 10 o'clock in the morning and by three quarters of the afternoon we'd often have a complete song done or we'd split up at the end of the day and then meet for an hour or two uh, a week later and just finished the lyric or something because, you know, and I was playing the guitar after about seven or eight hours, my fingers were pretty tired. Gotcha. And um, Were some of them not musicians? Yes, uh, they all were. I mean, but I always played. I don't ask me why, but I always did. Uh, and each of you brought like, something to the table to start a song? Each of you would say... Well, I mean, I Jeff Stevens, who was this ex-schoolmaster, only played in the key of C, but my God, he was an incredible natural composer. You're talking about writing tunes in your head. I mean, he he had an extraordinary natural ability to come up with melodies. Uh, and song, pop songwriting is not like other music forms. It's, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it's instinct, understanding the market, having the right emotional attachment to pop music, uh, feeling it in the right way. And I think, Knowing some music makes a hell of a difference, but I think the spark, the the, the original birth of the song often comes from uh, the kind of mind that doesn't actually know a lot of music. Well, let's do a little bit of free association. I name an artist or a song title and just to see what happens. Is that okay? Yeah. So I have a couple. Uh, I might steer you a bit, but I might just take what you give me. Uh, Johnny okay. Mathis. I know he recorded at least two songs, Don't Give Up On Us, and I didn't get, uh, last night, I didn't get... I, love, um, I actually met him uh, when I was a junior producer, and he was pretty rude to me, which affected me uh, quite a lot in terms of how I heard, how his voice sounded to me ever after that. Uh, I remember saying, oh, I really, you know, I, I, you know I'm a tremendous fan. I bought um, a Certain Smile was one of the first records I bought, and, I, and he said, well, shows you how much you know about music. I was out of I was out of tune for the first sixteen bars. Uh, uh, it was I didn't like him at all, uh, and therefore, and to me, he he has a very fine voice, but it sounds so clinical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the emotions sound fake to me. There's no it's real. It's great instrument, but there's no real commu- connection. Well, let's go from Johnny Mathis to um, Andy Williams. Andy Williams was the most delightful man. I mean, a lot of pop singers turn into monsters, but I spent quite a lot of time with Andy. 
in Vegas when I was recording for CBS. And he was a charming man with a hundred stories about everyone from Humphrey Bogart to Marilyn Monroe, you know, and uh, was a consummate professional in the studio. Um, and his capacity, because he'd come from brothers who were in a harmony group with him, his sense of singing harmonies was extraordinary. The only difficulty was he loved having a lot of reverb on his voice, which I hated. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of my early records, I used no reverb at all because uh, I thought it distanced the vocalist from the singer. And he would all say, no, turn up the reverb. And, and it made him sound like he was singing through a wind tunnel to me. Mm-hmm. But he was a delightful man. The Drifters. Well, they were really a franchise more than a band. I never, don't think I ever saw the same lineup of the Drifters once. And I had three big hits with them in the UK. Uh, Johnny Moore was the, one of the singers who took over from the original Benny King, who had that wonderful Saturday night at the movie's voice, you know, that voice that immediately you heard it, um, you know, sent a certain message. The expression used in the industry at the time was instant vocal recognition. And he had that, is the minute you heard one bar of that voice, you know who the band was. And they had such a set style. The impression was situation location songs, at a place doing something. Nearly all the early drifters were like that. We had the opportunity to put the group back together again in the mid-70s. The first record we did was just a clone of those early songs. We used all the old recording techniques to make it sound like it was recorded in 1957, 58. Great fun. Well, Love Grows was originally recorded by Edison Lighthouse, and I, it's one of my favorite songs in the world and never get tired of it. But have you heard Freddie Johnston's version? Who? His name is Freddie Johnston. Freddie Johnston. All yes. right, I'll look it's it like up. Freddie, that no, I haven't. Freddie with two E's. Um, uh, I really recommend it to you. It's, it's, he did a tremendous job of... All right, I'll look it up. Freddie Johnston. But, you know, doing it in a modern style, but keeping all the original things. Well, that was a certain idea, is that what would happen if you could condense a whole song into eight bars? What happens if you had a verse of four and a chorus of four? So it goes, she ain't got the money, her clothes are fine and funny, hair is kind of wild and free, that's the verse. And then in come the strings of the voice, oh, but love grows when Rosemary goes, nobody knows like me. So there's the whole song in eight bars. So it was an experiment to see if it could be done. And the whole thing was written in about two or three hours. And then... I had some time left on the big recording session I had coming up. So in the last 20 minutes of the session, we just did that backing track. And that morning, when I was having a shave, I came up with the famous intro. Bum, ba, ba, dum, bum, ba, da, so that was not the intro on the track. So I sat at the guitar quickly. and made, got everyone to write that down. And it's, there's no harmony parts or anything. It's just everybody's on the tune. And the brass play it, and then the strings play it. When I heard the backing track back with that uh, riff, or the, uh, that rolling riff, and then the strings coming in, uh, that, that sound is called 8VA marcato. That's when, the, as you know, the strings in two octaves, uh, octaves apart with the bows bowing every note. Makes it very rhythmic. It's an old Motown trick. 
anyway, it sounded like hit to me even without a vocal on. And when I put the vocals on, it shone instantly. But I felt it was less a song and more a production. So I pulled the voice quite back into the track to make sure those guitars, which really push it, the song forward, are actually the loudest thing on the track. Because I thought uh, if it, when it was mixed with a normal mix, it just didn't sound like a hit. As soon as I pull those guitars forward, you've got all that excitement, and it really did sound something. There's just a million things I like about it. How about uh, Elvis Presley? You did about three songs with him? Mm. Um, I was never particularly a Presley fan. I mean, I'm fully appreciative. I'm a Buddy Holly fan through and through, and the two are mutually exclusive, I think. Uh, Buddy uh, um, Presley was kind of the jocks hero when you talk to men, where, where Buddy Holly was more of this sort of nerds hero, you know, the the guys who did not, you know, who weren't in the <laughs> A team, A football team, you know, and Buddy Holly um, was the voice that was a big influence on me and the people of that. But when, you know, I mean, I, I knew Freddie Beanstalk, Presley's pub, music publisher, and um, so he asked me to write some songs, and I sort of walked around the house making Presley noises at myself, and. Uh, <laughs> And my manager said, why don't you try and write White Christmas again? So that's what I did. It's about people, about men in Vietnam, really, the song. Mm -hmm. And I wrote some other things for him. And I met Presley out in Memphis. And I went to Graceland's and, and so on. So no special requirements on the exclusivity or anything? You just did your thing? I was, had my own publishing degree by then. So I, I published the song with Presley's company in America, yeah. Great. I mean, a lot of these artists, they wouldn't think record your song unless they had the music publishing. Above the list of people that you've uh, listed on your website that have sung your songs, Frank Sinatra was the one I could not find a song title for. There was one recorded by him, a song called Oh My Joe. I can't find it anywhere. Gotcha. I heard only I only heard it halfway through and I took it off. They'd done it. It is actually in when I say it's in Swingfield. It's his pop swing feel, as is Bill Me Up Buttercup, for example. But it isn't in Billy May, Nelson Riddle swing feel. And I mm -hmm. just hated what they did with it. You know, I was brought up to Sinatra. I have to say uh, that um, Andy Williams told me a lot of stories about Sinatra. And at the end of that, I never wanted to hear Sinatra again. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Okay. Sylvia McNeil. I, I, I didn't know who she was. Sylvia McNeil uh, was a... A very beautiful uh, young girl with a wonderful throaty deep voice, and I thought she should be a star. I, I it was, you know, I had my successes, I had my failures. I tried quite hard with her. Was so um, I did one record with her that I really believed in, but it uh, had all the trait things about it. it. Should have had it, just wasn't magical enough. I, I heard it again the other day. It's all right. It was better than I remember it being, but it wasn't great. Well, there's a 1971 photo of you and her on the web um, on the opposite side of a recording console when you were producing. Yeah, I remember I it. I love yeah. that photo. Um, I'm going to throw you a ringer. Bobby Sherman. Uh, Bobby He's Sherman. I don't even know who he is. Th that's fine. He's a pop star, a bubblegum pop star that had a TV show that was sort of monkeys style. Uh, but he covered um, the Pony Express song. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I have to I have to look yeah. that out. I found it accidentally. Well, it's not anywhere the same quality as uh, the Johnny Johnson one.
going to be the follow-up to Love Grows because there was the band that, that I put together to be Edison Lighthouse because it's a studio group. Um, just the lead singer just couldn't make it happen. And so Johnny Johnson, who had had a hit with Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache, I'd had a small hit with him already in England. <clears throat> so I did it with him. And he had that instant party in his voice. I mean, he had the most amazing voice. And I was able to take the whole song up a full step. Uh, and uh, I think I played the guitar on it, that riff at the beginning on the original record. And that was very much the same kind of thing. I felt it was more of a production than a song. I'd seen a movie on TV called Pony Express and Greenaway came to the, it was, uh, came to the, to the writing session with me and he looked all this stuff up in the encyclopedia about how the Pony Express worked and we got it all into the song. But there again, the chorus was very dependent on that uh, rolling sort of guitar rhythm. And so, you know, again, the voice is quite far back in the track. And, and um, singing on all those tracks were Greenaway and Cook and two girls called Sue and Sonny. The world first heard them on a little bit of help from my friends with Joe Cocker. Mm. And I remember approaching them at a TV show saying, hey, you girls should do sessions. They never looked back after that. I used them on everything. They're on Love Grows, the oh, them nice. in the background. They're on yeah. most of my hits, really, from... Um, from about 1970 onwards. All right, here's another group that's probably more British than American. Um, I never heard of them. Marmalade? Marmalade had a string of hits in England, about 10 hits. Um, big, big group. Um, Baby Make It Soon is one of yours that I love. And I did Baby Make It Soon, which I just wrote. Uh, I never thought it was a hit, to be honest. And the recording is much like the demo. I mean, I quite like the song. It's... It, you know, quite appealing. It's very repetitive and very simple, but I quite like it. And then when the group reformed with a different lead singer, I had a top 10 hit with a thing called Falling Apart at the Seams, which stylistically was a complete lift of, of the Four Seasons sound. Mm -hmm. Ironically, having never had anything to do with the Four Seasons, I got a phone call from Bob Gordio about a month after the song came out, <laughs> asking me if I had anything for Frankie Valley. By that time, I'd already done a deal on the song in America, and it was too late. It looks like Bones Howe produced Last Night I Didn't Get to Sleep at All when it was recorded by uh, Fifth Dimension. I know you gave it to the Carpenters. I don't know if you wrote it for the Carpenters, but I hear in that, no, no, the breathiness. I feel like that's right. Sort of he was aiming for that. I gave it to the, I was in Japan with the Carpenters. I met them there and I wrote, and the reason I can't, last night I get sleep at all, the time change is about 12 hours. Oh, I can't, something of, the, of that order, 10 or 12 hours. And it just slaughtered me. So I was dopey all day there and awake all night. Hence last night I didn't get to sleep at all. And I thought it was a verse, the melody. I just thought it was leading, for ages and ages, I looked for a chorus for it to go to. And it only occurred to me, but really that was the melody, just that eight bar phrase. And so I finished the song off. And I remember I was going into the studio with a group um, and it was Saturday night. It was any time we could get studio time. I suddenly realized I hadn't finished the lyrics. I wrote most of the lyrics in the taxi going to the studio very quickly, recorded it. It certainly wasn't a hit single for England. For a start, almost all singles in those days, you had to have a dance sensibility, you know, and it, mm -hmm. you couldn't do that. And so I sent it to the Carpenters and Richard called me at like four o'clock in the morning. And he said, this line about sleeping pills. I said, well, you know, sleeping pills I took were just a waste of time. So 
we can't sing that. We don't sing anything about drugs. Oh, God. Can you rewrite the lyric? Uh, we're, we're here for another so many hours, you know. So I rewrote the lyric. In fact, I like the lyric I wrote better. Um, and I phoned through to the studio, to A&M Studios, and they'd gone home. And I thought, I've been up hours rewriting this, and they couldn't even hang around. That irritated me. And so um, a few weeks later, Bones Howe was in London, who I knew, and I played him the demo, and he loved it, and went back, and the rest is history, as they say. Well, Marilyn McCoo is probably thanking Karen Carpenter for turning it down every day. She did a great <laughs> job. Um, Elton John and Tim Rice. I didn't find the song that you did with them. Uh, yeah, because um, the song I did with Elton John, I wrote, is under the name Reg Dwight before he became Elton John. Ah, right. And it's called Lord, You Made the Night Too Long. And the song I wrote with Tim Rice, uh, we never, we did a demo of it. And we never did anything with it, so, but I did write with him. Polly Brown, I never heard of her or Pickety Witch before, but man, she has a Dionne Warwick thing going on, doesn't she? Yeah, well, that was it. She was a Dionne Warwick sort of sound alike. I still get the same old band that John had and that was a b-side and really John's involvement that is zero although he's got his name on it and got uh, because I wrote the chorus as a b-side to a song just the chorus with another verse on the first foundation's first album that appears that song with a different melody just the chorus melody and all the rest of it's different You're and then when I was working with the Hollies I wrote sat and wrote that rewrote the song with Tony Hicks of the Hollies but he didn't at the end of it he said I don't think this is really us I said, well, don't you want your name on it? Right. He said, no. So we were, then John went and reproduced it with Piccadilly, which was top five hit. Uh, and I just wanted to mention that I thought uh, Any Old Time You're Feeling Lonely and Sad by The Foundations had a Gilbert O'Sullivan feel to it. Any old time, baby, that your love goes wrong. Yes, you hold die, baby, and I'll be alone. I will dry your tears and when each one disappears, I'll be there. I'll come from anywhere. Yeah, it, it, well, they were entirely the wrong band to do it with. The guy had a very gruff voice. And the song, was it was okay. Had we done it with a, a different artist, it might have been a hit, but I, I never quite clicked to me. You went from your songwriting era to writing books. Was that the right order? Yeah. Writing fiction, right? Mm -hmm. What caused you to change and focus your energy and attention on writing books? What was happening in the music world at that time? Well, I was in my 40s. And, you know, uh, the record industry is a young person's game and music was changing. Mm -hmm. I really run out of things I wanted to do in pop music. Uh, I didn't identify with much of what was happening at the time. Uh, my mother had, I had novelists in my family. I read a line in the newspaper one day, which gave me an idea and wrote a book. Um, the first book I wrote was called Sayonara. The second book I wrote was called Enemy of the State. 
And I got a quote from the novelist Jack Higgins, who was huge at the time, uh, saying that this is the best things of its kind since Day of the Jackal. And that was the next big thing or something. And of course, I sold it all over the world as a result. And um, as I was just coming out of a very expensive divorce, it was a very nice development. And I wrote mm-hmm. another book called Brutal Truth. And then I came up with the idea of, of going to the Brighton University near where I live in, in England and saying, look, I've changed my career from being a songwriter to a novelist. And there's very specific ways, very specific technique I've used to do it. You know, I think I could pass it on to other people. And I taught for four years at the university and I had a very, very high percentage of, of people that got book deals. One guy who is to this day one of the biggest novelists in England, he's had four number one hits with historical novels and was my student. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. We should mention that there's another author named Tony McCauley who spelled the same way and is not you. Is that correct? No, yes, he's an Irish uh, mm-hmm. activist and sportsman, I think. How many books have you written? Well, I wrote, I wrote three um, that did well, but the difficulty is, you know, they took, I, I couldn't just churn them out. It'd take me about six months mm-hmm. to a year to research them and a year to write them. And um, theatre started to, to come back into my life. I, I mean, theatre's what I wanted to do right from the beginning, you know, when I was young. And that um, came back into my life again in quite a spectacular way. A uh, hit show I'd written in the 80s was on in lots of theatres in America and Germany and various places and then I got offers to do other shows and this gave me a chance to combine the book writing with the songwriting and a songwriting of an entirely different nature because you know you, you you are using very many more techniques to write show tunes than you are in pop music. You've set up an association with the Cocoa Village Playhouse in Cocoa Beach, Florida. It, yes, if you know the area, it's just it's outside Orlando and it's at, mm-hmm. uh, it's Orlando's beachfront, effectively, and there's a sort of Greenwich Village-style area there, dating from the 20s, and there's a state-of-the-art Broadway house. Well, it is for the last seven or eight years. They've spent millions on it. It's got absolutely every facility a Broadway house would have. Plus, they've got brilliant funding. And I've had seven wonderful years uh, work doing... I did five productions for them. Oh, five. Including several, yeah. Uh, and including two completely from scratch musicals. And it's been an absolute joy. You know, I've had the time of my life. I understand they all sold really well. Is there any chance that any of us will ever get to see them that weren't there? Well, the trouble with the Build Me Up Buttercup musical, which was the first original one I wrote, is the publishing situation is a nightmare because they're all different publishers. Mm-hmm. And uh, to do the thing any, in any other context outside of... Uh, the community theatre situation would require an enormous amount of money to, to you know, acquire all the different rights necessarily. Gotcha. And it became so complicated uh, that I didn't pursue it a great deal further. They're going to do the show again, quite possibly, in a, in a, and I'm going to do it in a way that I can actually get around some of these issues. I uh, wrote the book, music and the lyrics. I had about five, six hit songs in it. The rest were original. And then more recently, I did a show called Sherlock in Love, which was Sherlock versus Jack the Ripper, where he falls in love with a sort of a vaudeville star along the way. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that. That was an entirely new thing for me to write a sort of English traditional musical, bit like My Fair Lady or or, um, Oliver. That style, you know, as opposed to writing a, you know, a pop musical. 
So that's, that's right. been a huge adventure. Well, when you did the ones with music, what were the sizes of the bands that you worked with? 15 pieces as a rule. Uh, big, you know, which for theatre these days is huge. 18 pieces in some cases. Um, with a whole section of horns, real strings, backed up with a string synthesizer. And when we had pop bands, we'd have, you know, the whole work, two guitars, bass, drums, uh, percussion. Were so you a consultant or did you actually rehearse the band? I did all the arrangements on one of, you know, um, on Pro Tools, uh, mm-hmm. which is for the, those who know about these things, you know, sure. it means you can completely clone the whole orchestra sound, which has innumerable uh, benefits. One of, all, one of which is by the time you actually get the live band into the pit and hear them first time, you know every note of the score already and you know that it works to the extent that it does with synthesized instruments which saves a huge amount of time and a lot of cost in changing things around afterwards. Um, so I did all the arrangements on Pro Tools and then had it expanded out for the different you know, instruments individually. And uh, wrote all the underscore, which is great fun to do, and um, wrote the whole play and cast it and drew out the initial drawings for the set designs, which was hugely complicated. Big, great big sets, great fun. Um, and so on and so forth. So I um, had, you know, was intimately involved with every part of it. In preparation for this interview, um, I went back and reread. I have, I still have this songwriter magazine I bought in 1978. Uh, wow. You were interviewed in there and you talked about a Laurel and Hardy musical, which I'd never heard you talk about. Well, the two principal people involved with that um, both had heart attacks uh, within about a year of each other. And, and without the stars, attached to it it became almost impossible to cast we went to uh, this was a musical as you say based on the lives of laurel and hardy there are other difficulties with it too i mean because they're so famous a lot of stars didn't want to play people that you know were that famous because they felt you know the comparisons that would be made will be as shakespeare put it odious there was another musical dealing with that era which was um the max senate musical what was that called Mac and Mabel, that's it. Ah. Mac and Mabel dealt with the early days of, of talkies, silent movies and talkies and all that. And it kind of stole our thunder to a large extent. And so, you know, we felt that really had had its time. But it wasn't wasted because I was able to use a lot of the songs in other projects. I actually think almost every song was, one of the songs I recorded with Gladys Knight, another song I recorded with David Soul. Uh, and so it really um, it was not a wasted exercise. Very nice. So let me ask you a question here that's multi-part that you can just pick and choose whatever you want to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. One of them is, how did your writing skills as a songwriter prepare you for musicals and or how has your songwriting process changed over the years and or in what ways has your lyric writing style or your songwriting voice changed over time? Pick what you like. Well, I'll just combine them. I mean, the first thing to say about musicals is you've got, you've got to know the history of musicals and you've got to understand what music is meant to do in a musical. And the songs in a musical, a few can entertain, especially if you're in a show within a show, you know, in, in, in South Pacific, when Nellie Forbush sings 101 Pounds of Fun, it's just a song in a show. So a, a small percentage, a couple of the songs can just entertain. But in general, they must either develop the character, develop plot, 
develop the world of the piece in which the story is set, or in some way advance the piece. Otherwise, you run the risk of people saying that you're just shoving songs in, slowing down the action of the, of the story, and the songs get in the way as opposed to doing a job. And so whenever any character has something of, of note to say in a musical, they should sing it. That's why there are never any long speeches in musicals because um, the two things are mutually exclusive. I mean, so the next thing to say is that when you've got a, you know, maybe 14, 16, 18 songs in a show, you've got to ring the changes. And having everything in 4 4 time, you know, 120 beats to the minute, will be absolutely uh, dreadful. I mean, there are plenty of, of jukebox musicals that do that, but then we know all the songs beforehand and we make allowances. Mm -hmm. And so largely to the critics. But when you listen to the music of the great composers of musicals, Roger Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe and so forth, they will use a whole range of different tempos, uh, times, signatures and so on to bring the changes so that you get a sense of a whole as opposed to a bunch of songs just shoved together. Um, and therefore, you know, you also, it's very important to try and maintain energy in a modern musical. So perhaps 20 years ago, you might have had a ballad or two in Act One, but you don't have any ballads in Act One now, very seldom. I mean, um, Alan Menken, who wrote all the Disney music, a lot of the Disney musicals breaks the rule, but you're trying to push the thing on as hard as you can. And mm -hmm. so you're trying to bear in mind all these elements when you're writing a musical. And so the most important thing about writing a musical is to choose the right subject in the first place choose something that's not so beloved that adding music to it is going to upset the purists, but not so unknown that people simply don't identify with the story. And so it's a very, it's a very, very delicate balancing act. Um, you know, the best musicals, you don't go more than three or four pages without something sung, even if it's a reprise of something else or... Sounds like when uh, a pop star tried to enter the world of country music in the old days, right? It's, you can't change that. You can't be different. <laughs> you know, you well, affect the country music style. Right. So you are looking, you are looking to create a whole musical tableau with the songs, where each of the key members of the each of the key characters will have a moment, a motif that's theirs, if you like, that you can bring back again and again. And you want, maybe want a duet when the lovers fall in love. You want the 11 o'clock ballad, 11th hour ballad that the, you know, one of the leads sings, uh, you know, at, at the high point of the drama, you know, 15 minutes before the end of act two. There's a great deal of tradition about writing musicals. You want to bookend both acts with really strong music, musical moments, but bring the curtain up and down with some impact, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's the thought that you put into the thing before you write a single word of the show that's crucial. Picking the moments where you put the songs correctly, where the songs actually do a job and, and embellish the project as opposed to just slowing it down to, you know, this great, a great sludgy, unseaworthy thing. And um, so, yes, I, I think a, a, a basis in pop music is only helpful because, I mean, the mistake I made with some of the early musicals I wrote donkeys years ago, was I thought, you know, the most important thing is to show off one's capacity to be, uh, you know, a good musician. Whereas really, you know, the 
people, the critics and the public are asking the same thing of most musicals as they are of pop songs. They want to come out singing the music, not the scenery. <laughs> and therefore you are obligated to keep a, have as memorable a score as you can. You know, and some of the great writers of musicals, the most memorable songs are incredibly simple. And so if you just want to use it as a show, show off opportunity to impress people with how much you've learned, then, then you've got the wrong idea entirely. But it's certainly true that you can use a lot more technique in the shows than you do in the pop music, but that's not, that's just an occasional bonus. All right. Does that um, answer all your questions on that? Wonderful. No, it was wonderful. We're just trying to get like uh, things that songwriters think about. Are there youthful points of view that as an older person who's lived through some things, maybe divorce or, or disappointments or whatever, that uh, you wouldn't be as quick to embrace today in your writing? Or do you think it's still okay to write a happy-go-lucky love song or whatever? Men never cry in my songs. I hate that. Um, no, I don't think things have changed at all in terms of what songs are about. Unrequited love, love gone wrong, longing songs, brave songs. I suppose Love Grows is a happy-go-lucky song now I think about it. Well, they're very untypical of what I do. I mean, I tend to be, you know, the songs that have an emotional impact usually are fairly sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote a song called, which my wife particularly loves, which Gladys Knight recorded, which is from the Laurel and Hardy show originally, although no one knows it, called We Don't Make Each Other Laugh Anymore, which is an unremittingly miserable song. I try not to write those. They used to say that, you know, that if you're going to write a sad song or a torch song of that sort of, is, um, then you should end on a mo element of hope, a sort of someday maybe we'll meet again and everything will be all right, you know, mm -hmm. because otherwise the song takes on a really sort of self-pitying um, kind of element, you know, pity party songs that usually don't work in the end. They leave the wrong emotion in the listener's mind. Let's just say from the 80s for the heck of it, I'm just going to, arbitrarily picked the 80s to today. Has any songwriter come along that's changed the way you write? No, I mean, I'm firmly, I, I started off as a child listening to my mother play Rogers and Hammerstein and, on the piano and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. You know, I, I'm a real film buff of that, of the 30s and 40s era, you know. So, I mean, I know all the scores of, I can still to this day play the scores of most of these shows on the piano or, or most of the key songs. And then, as we go through, we come through, you know, um, obviously Goffin and King and people, Barry Mann and Cynthia Well, but in, if you're talking what really got me going was Burt Bacharach and Hal David and Holland mm -hmm. Dozier Holland. And I kind of took the the lilting melodic quality of, of Bacharach in my mind and, and put it against the grinding rhythms of Holland Dozier Holland and came up with a new kind of style which got that got me sort of noticed and then i'd like to think you know i kind of did my own thing and and made um came up with a, uh, a sound that was more recognizably mine then having got to that place i stopped being influenced by other writers nearly as much to the point that when i'm writing i never listen to music other than people so i i don't want to worry that i'm absorbing in the wrong elements from them you know and, I love that soundbite you just gave about um, Burt Bacharach and, and Holland Dozier Holland because if people go back and listen to your catalog and especially with the foundations, you're gonna hear that solo trumpet at times in the arrangement and you'll hear the bass line that's doing the, the Motown thing or even in Buttercup, you know, 
uh, sort of a, a Motown bass line. Oh, very much so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love the, I mean, in my head, often when I was singing, I was Levi Stubbs at the Four Tops uh, in Another Life. Uh, they never recorded anything of mine, which is always a great sadness to me. I've been told two songs are recording of mine, but I can, can't find any record of them. I don't think after a certain period, I felt that I wanted to, to you know, model myself on anybody else. You know, I sort of thought whatever comes out for better or worse is mine, you know. That's right. Well, you've had about uh, at least four soundtracks that used your song so far. There's something about Mary, Heartbreakers, Shallow Hell, and Star- Starsky and Hutch. Um, there's been a couple more. There's Conjuring 2. That's okay. a funny story, actually. We went, the Conjuring 2 was just a pretty big picture last year. And we went to see it because we knew we had Don't Give Up On Us in it. And they just paid a pretty hefty bloody check to use it. <laughs> we were all been laughing. This girl sitting on a bed in it, set in England in 1975 or something. And David Sol's big poster of him on the wall. And she takes off her headphones and you hear, just don't give up on us, baby. Don't. And that's all we hear. Oh. They paid tens of thousands of dollars to use it. We thought, either they shouldn't have used it, or they should use a bit more of it, but it was a complete waste of money from their point of view, but a very happy moment for us. Exactly. None of them needed permission, right? Or did they? Oh, yeah. They oh, yeah. They have to, I mean, yeah. To cover a song, just to sing a song, you don't need permission, but to put it in a movie, you do. No, but if synchronization rights, sync gotcha. rights, which is gotcha. to use it with a commercial or a film, you have to pay, you know, at the standard rate. And for a Hollywood-based movie, it's a lot of money. Well, I just want to say one more time. Uh, we, last time we talked, I mentioned that the Guardians of the Galaxy um, series is using songs that are right up your alley. They're right from your era. And I hope you get placed in their third movie that when the third one comes. <laughs> it. it's, and, it's, and they sell like crazy. They're, they're like, it's Marvel, you know, so it's going to be doing yeah. gangbusters business for you. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, my last uh, topic is legacy, and uh, I just want to cover a couple of things here that uh, I read about. You knocked yourself out of number one uh, with another number one, didn't you? Yeah, that was crazy. The well, first big hit I had was Baby Now That I Found You, and um, I, uh, a wonderful blues singer who'd never had pop hits came to me and wanted me to record him, so I did a sort of drifters-type ballad called Let the Heartaches Begin. It was a kind of save the last dance for me kind of thing in my head. Not rhythmically, but that was the mood in terms of the lyric, you know. And um, we recorded it, and it shot straight up the charts in two weeks, and not my own number one off the top position. I'm the only person ever to do that, and I had number one and number two, and then number two, and then the other way up, you know. So I wasn't the first person to do that. And um, everyone said, you know, what an achievement. I said, no, it's not that. It's the worst planning in history. (laughs) Who wants to? their own number one so quite the reverse is true so that was the second story i was going to ask you about it sounds like it was related three songs on the charts at once is that what you had uh i think three is the most i've had in the, in the top 10 at once yeah i had two in the top 10 quite a long time on and off from 67 to about eight to, to, till about 77 um they would come along, came along like buses, you know, I go for a year with nothing and then have two go into the top 10 at the same time. And it happened quite a few times. Uh, but uh, three, I, th- I only had three in the charts once, I think. If my calculations are correct, um, I, I tried to do the math here. Was it 1986 that you played for the Queen's 60th birthday? 
Yes, I think it might have been. Yeah, that's right. Was it solo or with a band, and was it music? Oh no, no. They approached me and asked me to write a, a, a Queen's Birthday song, ah. uh, and um, I came up with this really quite complicated piece. They wanted a, ch a song like a child song, you know, uh, but I wanted to write the big Elgar, you know, Happy Birthday, ma'am. God bless you. This huge, great anthem thing. So we compromised and I wrote a sort of childish verse about going to the palace and seeing the queen and then had it modulate through. It was a crazy thing to do for 6,000 kids to sing, to have it change time, feel, time signature, tempo, feel, key, <laughs> and then go back again. Plus it was hugely rangy. But I thought, well, I'm not, you know, if we don't tell them, they won't know it's hard. And so on the day, 6,000 kids sang it perfectly from start to finish, having never rehearsed together. They only rehearsed in schools, you know. It was the biggest rehearsed musical event in British history. Fantastic. On behalf of songwriters everywhere, I want to thank you for your role in making music contracts more fair. <laughs> and now <laughs> you please get to work on making streaming pay more fairly. That's your next task. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? Um, what do you feel the internet, Wikipedia, or history gets wrong or misunderstands or completely misses about you, if anything? Um, not much. Um, I'm, Pretty fair. I, I mean, I never went, I never looked for awards. I, I never even thought about them. People ring up and say, you've got to go to this thing. I don't know why. I think the less I thought about it, the more I won. And whenever I thought about it, I didn't win. So I've had, you know, a huge amount of things to be grateful for. Um, still living well off the, all the money in a very happily uh, and, um, enjoying retirement. And um, I don't have too many regrets anymore. I don't think, you know, obviously I, I wish I hadn't signed such a spurious contract and spent seven years in court trying to get out of it, but every other writer did. And they just didn't fight to get out. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't turn the clock back and think, it, you know, if only I'd done this and only I'd done that. So all in all, I'm, I'm just happy that I was able to spend my whole, career doing something I'd have done for nothing or even paid to do and um, I have very few regrets. It's a great place to finish up. Do you have anything coming up that you want to tell us about? I'm going to nope. tell everybody to go visit TonyMcCauley.com so they can see uh, more about you. Um, no I don't. I'm first time in my life since last May when really I just ran out of ideas and ran out of energy for doing all this. I mean, the last musical I did, you know, to put it on took over 90 people a night. And I was involved with every area of it. And I found it quite extraordinarily tiring, even though there were no, nothing went wrong at any point. It all went, couldn't have gone more smoothly. I did find it tiring. And it struck me it probably was kind of time to hang my boots up before I did myself some damage. And uh, I paint in oils and I do carpentry and have a lovely time with my beautiful wife. And that's good enough at this point at 73. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've got an amazing amount of uh, work behind you already, and we look forward to whatever comes next. And I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Okay, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 1 with Tony McCauley. Thanks for spending some time with us. For more about Mr. McCauley and his music, stop by the Writer's Room under this episode at songwriterstories.com. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.